Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we discuss me, Steve Tyson Jr., also known as Elect, musician, educator, and documentarian. In a Style Free exclusive, We'll have a deep father and son conversation about my musical journey, as well as my life's journey thus far, with stories from my childhood and college, to my experiences and over 20 years working in education, all the way up to owning an independent record label in 2022. Tune in, because if you've been a part of my journey, you might end up hearing your name dropped. So it's good to be back with you, Papa. Yeah, likewise. Glad to be in another episode of Style Free. I thought it'd be interesting for us to talk about you. As an artist, we talk a lot about music, and uh, you certainly have grown up with a lot of music in your own life. And I was wondering if you could maybe start out by telling us uh, when did you really first feel music as you know an important part of your life? Uh, what, what was the kind of context in which you grew up where you know music had a presence, whether it was church or in the home or uh, with friends? Uh, when, when did it really come into your consciousness? Uh, it was definitely the home first. You know, with you and mom always having some music going at some point throughout the day. Like, it was really cool. So, like, I was able to get a lot of your musical tastes and mom's musical tastes. I mean, even the car rides that we would take traveling to grandma's house or whenever we would go to Pittsburgh or something like that. Like every car ride, one of you two was singing lead, the other was singing the backup harmonies and the ad-libs. And it was just always a little mini family concert in the car, um, just (laughs) folks having fun and enjoying music. And then once I obviously dating myself a bit but you know once I got my Walkman and and it was able to have my own like cassettes and listen to my own music you know that really like I was really immersed into that like I used to always have this like emotional and imaginative connection with music Hmm. Um, like for example that sound that's really interesting the way you describe that yeah I mean it's because as a kid, I always recognized how music made me feel and how different songs made me feel different emotions, whether it was, you know, sometimes it was the lyrics, but as I've gotten older and reflected on it, I realized that it's like the song composition and the structure of the music mm-hmm. itself, um, almost regardless of what the lyrics are. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely songs that have, you know, been inspiring for me. I, th- I think tuning into lyrics is what got me really into hip-hop but the melody and the emotion that can be created through different chord progressions and just song structures I didn't have the language or the understanding of what it was but I definitely recognized how it was affecting me as a little Mm -hmm. kid and so if it was you know children like even children's songs like the theme song to Land Before Time or, you know, like that, like that song as a little kid used to make me cry with emotion or, you know, like listening to Sesame Street and hearing Big Bird and Kermit sing songs would make me laugh or, you know, or even make me emotional at times, too. You know, like it's not Mm -hmm. so easy being green is a song that helps kids, at least for me, get a better understanding of, you know, some of the emotions and things that they're going through. And so. 
I always connected with a lot of just how music made me feel and, you know, whether it was, you know, being excited or, um, you know, dancing, you know, around the house or if it was making me think or if it was making me feel certain emotions, like, you know, I was always tuned into that. And then especially in the church, too. So, I mean, so the context around a lot of this is also informed by where we lived when I was growing up also. And so because we lived in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which was not ethnically or culturally diverse until I was, the only only place I saw people of color was really in the church if it wasn't for folks in my family. Mm -hmm. And so- It's not easy being green. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and it wasn't easy being black either like <laughs> so it, yeah it, so it was really interesting how i saw how music manifested itself inside of the church and how whether it was the choir director or the music director and how they would work back and forth with one another to mm. switch the the emotion of different songs or the cadence of different songs or, or it, from one part of the program to the next mm-hmm. and how musically there was a journey in going to church every Sunday. Um, that's, that's really interesting. You should mention that because I think we should also mention that uh, because I came from a Catholic background, mm-hmm. your mother came from a Baptist background, mm-hmm. but, but we tended to go to the Baptist church. Right. A bit more so. Yeah. And, I, and I, so, I appreciated yeah. the Catholic church too. Um, mm-hmm. I, very easily recognize the differences between being at a, you know, black Baptist church and a predominantly white Catholic church. And and the music was, I think, the most striking thing for me. I mean, there was hmm. the force of the choir at the Baptist church, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's St. James Missionary Baptist Church is the church that we went to. And then the Catholic church that we would go to was St. Rochus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, at St. James, that choir was a force. And at least that's how it hit me. Like, I don't know what the quality of or caliber of that choir is through my adult lens and the experiences that I've had just growing up and meeting and listening to various singers and, mm. and choirs. Mm. But mm. for my limited experience as a child and, and what it did for me, it really hit home. And so it was even more than just like the voices in the choir, but the way the drummer was attacking the drums and the basses and how he would just put some pop and some funk inside of all of these spiritual songs. I was like, man, this is incredible. And then we would go to St. Rochus and it would be predominantly guitar, acoustic guitar and hand claps with a little yeah. piano. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which Might was been cool. an or, or an organ or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was cool. Yeah. It was cool. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, but it was, the it, energy I just noticed was the, different, the difference. Right? Very much so. The energy was yeah. definitely different. Yeah. But the harmonies at the Catholic church really struck me in mm. the way that they would sing like, Jesus, Lord of Lord, you take away the sins of the world. And have all the other people singing in different harmonies behind them. Like, I was like, wow. Yeah. Like, especially when they hit that have mercy on us. I was like, ooh, <laughs> like they, they nailed that. Um, and so like, that would be my favorite part of going to the Catholic church was listening to how they would 
do the music, but then also getting that little wafer at host and stuff because we didn't get that like that as Not often the as body of Christ. The Baptist church. Right, right. The body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So early on, you know, like you say, in the church, the church was very important in terms of the music, the energy, the way in which the arrangements, the vocal arrangements, the, uh, you know, the attack in terms of the musical instruments, as well as the human voice itself uh, and the harmonies. Now, you also mentioned something about, you know, growing up in the house. Is there any music that you can think of that maybe your mother or I played that had an impression on you at, at an early age that... Uh, kind of stayed with you? Yes, there's definitely individuals, like musicians and groups that had an impact on me uh, as a kid. Michael Jackson, Earth, Wind and Fire, all of the Motown catalog, um, you know, so much of that. But I think what really stuck to me the most was how I would see you and mom interacting with the music. Mm. And what do you mean? So with mom, it was, you know, we're driving in the car and she's always singing along to every single song, you know, just unabashed as though nobody can see. And, you know, she's singing just with pure joy and freedom. And I'd be in the backseat of the car bopping along and singing along, too. And and her taste in music was really diverse and different, too, which, which I appreciated. And I, and I would say different as far as what somebody would expect maybe of a, you know, black woman in the eighties and nineties where, you know, she's listening to a lot of Carol King and the Eagles, America. Yeah. Yeah. Eagles, uh, Chicago. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, Steely Dan, Boz Skaggs. It was really cool hearing music that my mom would enjoy that was just different than, what I expected a black person to enjoy because growing up in a place like Johnstown, socially and externally, there was a lot of a narrative around what a black person could or couldn't be. And so, you know, if I had any interest in like hip hop, then I would try to bring a song to my friends or into school or to after school at all. They would be like, no, you can't listen to that or that's bad. You can't play that. It's rap music. That's that's terrible. And it wouldn't have it would be like the clean version of a Coolio song. Like it was ridiculous with the, the type mm -hmm. of reactions that they would have. And, and it's not to say a mom only listened to like, you know, 80s soft rock or, you know, <laughs> folk or anything like that. But listening to. Paul McCartney and Wings, like I can't hear a single Wings song without thinking of driving in the car with mom in her little yellow Toyota Tercel all through Johnstown. Like that, any Paul McCartney Wings song makes me think of driving around with her. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so with you, you know, being a visual artist and, and the type of artist that you are, where you're informed so much by music and, and your connection and interactions with it, um, especially, you know, as you mentioned during season one of Style Free, I think it was in the James Brown episode. In that episode, you talk about having a synesthesia experience where you're seeing certain colors and how... I was talking the, about James Brown, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said that, that it was the first time when I closed my eyes, I could imagine seeing colors shapes, angular shapes, and silver, and blue, and uh, I think I said white and black, 
you know, those are the, the things that came to mind. And then years later, I translated that into a painting called Corner to Corner, mm-hmm. which was a fusion of that experience, listening to Herbie Hancock's Future to Future, mm-hmm. you know, and, and applying my dot patterns, which became sort of a signature style by that time. So early on, you had all of these experiences, but you also, most of the music that I think that your friends were listening to at that time, as I think you alluded to, you know, was not largely rap or hip hop. Um, What was some of the music that you were hearing in your environment at that time? And did that- To be honest with you, (laughs) I couldn't tell you. I had no idea what any of my friends were listening to growing up Mm. because- I don't know if even they were really listening to music like that. Like, I, I'm, I'm really, like, going back and reflecting on some of my friends. Like, I remember my one friend, Brandon, he had a Boys to Men CD, uh, the two album. And my friend Ricky, he had the TLC Crazy Sexy Cool album. Mm. But as the, And those are the only two examples I can ever think of of my friends having any type of music when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I, they were much more into sports and video games, which I was definitely into as well. Um, and that's where we connected was through sports and video games. Oh, but wow. we never really had any connections through music. My musical connections and how much that informed and inspired me came from predominantly you and mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, we, I was a, used to being from New York and loving the music that I used to enjoy in New York, which was in general kind of eclectic, but but I tended to gravitate toward, um, you know, R&B, jazz, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So there was a time where we were able to travel to New York and visit WBLS. Yeah. Remember that? Uh, yeah, I vaguely remember that. I was, you know, like 10, 9. Yeah. yeah. I might have been younger than that. But when it comes to those radio stations and those DJs, how they influenced me was through the mixtapes that you would make recording those radio programs. And that that was really my first then experience actually connecting and listening to hip hop because we didn't have any of those stations in Johnstown. Mm-hmm. So those cassette tapes that you had of those recordings from WBLS and and all of these stations that were playing black music Mm -hmm. i was like completely enthralled with like Mm -hmm. i absolutely loved it whenever you played those tapes or i'd ask you dad can you play this and and, you know it'd be (laughs) a lot of cool stuff like public enemy and everything like that but i would also even want you know some of the novelty songs like biz marquis picking boogers (laughs) you know like (laughs) you remember that and and like it it wouldn't matter like as long as it was hip-hop like i was like wow like this is Cool. And so and at the same time, Yo MTV Raps was just mm-hmm. getting onto TV and then ending up having its multi-year run. And so as a little kid, I was definitely inspired and informed by the music that you and mom would play and the music that I would hear in the churches. But it wasn't until I got a hold of those mixtapes from those radio stations mm. and then tuning into Yo TV raps where I actually had my first real connections and mm. my own tangible 
moment of being like, yeah, like this is something that I want to do. And and I want to be like these guys that I see on the TV or that I'm hearing their music on the radio. Like, And that's the point because you saw them, you saw yeah. them yeah. and you saw something reflected back at you mm-hmm. in a way that in the cultural environment where you were growing up, for the most part, you didn't see, certainly not in terms of entertainers or, you know, people who were doing rap or, you know, that sort of thing in the community. And even beyond that, just people in general. Mm -hmm. The only black teenagers I saw as a kid growing up were some of the the handful of kids that were in the church. Mm -hmm. And as a seven, eight, nine-year-old, I'm not allowed to go hang out with the 13, 14, 16, 17-year-olds, and and they're not wanting me to kick it with them like that anyway. Mm -hmm. So if I'm only on one day a week for three hours, because it was a long service, (laughs) for three hours (laughs) that Sunday is my only, you know, somewhat proximate connection to young black kids, Mm -hmm. then what's going to inform me is where where else am I going to see young black kids? It's Mm going to be these young rappers and entertainers that are on YoMTV Raps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. None of my friends were watching Yom TV raps, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, that's for sure. And also, you know, you have to think back that a lot of these um, young folks, for them, you were their first exposure to a Black person, you know, yeah. as a friend, yeah. you know, in terms of your family, mm-hmm. you know. And so you were projecting to them, and our family was projecting to them, you know, uh, an image that maybe in some ways broke certain stereotypes or preconceived notions, you know? So there was a learning process there. But at the same time, I know that there were also a lot of pressures on you, as we talked before about, you know, jokingly, you know, it's not easy being green. But I think that, you know, this idea of feeling that you, you know, where you don't have anything that sort of reflects back to you, something that recognizes your value, mm-hmm. you know? as a person, you know, the culture that of which you are a part mm-hmm. uh, is sometimes, um, it can feel kind of uh, lonely or isolated in certain ways. Yeah. And there's no question that there are very many fine people in that community, mm-hmm. right? But going back to New York, as we would travel back to New York every now and then seeing family or as well as uh, Philadelphia, I think was sort of a healthy antidote to feeling isolated, you know, in this environment. And the music was a vehicle for you to connect with something to transcend the limitations of the environment in which you live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that you embrace that in a big way. And I think that through your own spirit, your own intelligence, your own need to express itself, uh, express yourself, I think that that uh, was the model for you. And through that, you began to recognize uh, the importance of a lot of different things. One, you started listening to people like KRS-One. Mm-hmm. You started listening to people like um, uh, Chuck D and Public Enemy. You started listening to even, even some of the women like Queen Latifah, mm-hmm. you know, and Ladies First. And, mm-hmm. You know, the list goes on and on and on in terms, I'm talking about those formative years in the early, early years. Yeah. Uh, Michael Jackson as a star entertainer, mm-hmm. you know, his music. Um, and you, like many other people, you know, you grab that 
that hairbrush or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Started doing your spins and turning yeah. around and all it's of funny. that. You mentioned Michael Jackson too. Like, I mean, he was definitely major, major influence. I mean, he was the biggest artist in the world at the time I was growing mm-hmm. up. But mm-hmm. um, also, it was when I started to realize that music was a business was whenever I learned about My Jack Music and MJJ Records. And you had told me about both of those entities. And I was, you know, like eight years old, learning that an artist can actually have a business end of their uh, mm. career in addition to the entertaining side. And that was just really cool. Where I, you know, then I'm a little kid thinking like, oh, like one day can I get signed to MJJ Records and be an mm. artist on there? And I'm seeing, you know, Tevin Campbell working with Prince. So <laughs> Yeah. You know, one day what what it will be like for me one day, you know, that having those, you know, little kid ambitions and stuff. Yeah. Uh, even yes. though I wasn't really having any formal musical training besides piano lessons at the music shop in the mall. Mm-hmm. So I had these ambitions and these ideas of, oh, man, like music and and, and musical expression is the place and space for me as a human being and hopefully in my career, mm-hmm. but yet the opportunities to immerse myself in that were really limited, whether that was by circumstance to where we lived or circumstance of our income at the time uh, as a family. Mm-hmm. But I only my only musical outlets were piano lessons and then eventually school band where yeah. I ended up playing the trumpet. Um, first and even in, first chair. Right? Yeah. I, well, yeah, I worked my way there. But yeah. 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 <laughs> but um, we even had an encounter with the uh, with um, John Fattis. Yeah. At yeah. the Blue Note. Yep. You know, <laughs> with uh, with with Mill Jackson and mm-hmm. and some other when we went down there with uh, your grandfather. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And he offered offered you lessons too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I, mean, I reminded I, him of a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I mean, I mean, at that point, it was irrelevant. <laughs> but, but yeah, there was a lot of opportunities that then also weren't capitalized. I mean, I'm a nine-year-old kid. I can't capitalize on the opportunity of connecting with John Fattis, but Yeah, but you know, I wonder if something that, that maybe shifted a little bit. You remember we went to see that movie... <laughs> <laughs> we no up. so yeah no yeah yeah you're bringing up yeah but you're also conflating two different experiences in time so we saw was, you were younger right you were like yeah yeah we saw five. no better blues when i was like five years old and denzel gets clocked with the trumpet and with his own trumpet in that movie yeah. um and that scared the bejesus out of me as a kid no, um was <laughs> But then at the same time, I went and grew up and played trumpet. You know, I grew up, you know, I say grew up, but like a few years later, I mm. end up playing trumpet. Now, yeah. trumpet wasn't my first choice. I wanted to play drums and I wanted to play saxophone. But mm. Mm. here we are. I end up at trumpet. And so, so like, that's the thing. Like, we were really just, and I say we, I mean, I'm only a kid, so I don't have agency <laughs> in the decisions that are made for me in the schoolhouse and you know, with professionals like John Faddis, but, you know, with the opportunities that I am aware of as far as what we were presented, mm. school band and piano lessons at the mall weren't gonna get me to what I, where I wanted to be. 
you know, so by the time I'm become a teenager and then I start to learn about how all these rap songs I love are being produced, it's like, that's great. Where do I go to learn how to do that? Or who can I connect with to learn how to do that? And Mm -hmm. there was nobody in Johnstown, Pennsylvania that at least I was aware of um, to be connected with. And then we moved to Clifton Park, New York, and there was limited opportunity up there as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so even what I was experiencing as a young trumpet player, that also got the plug pulled on it when we moved to Clifton Park because I go to a new school in a new district and they say, oh, we already have enough trumpets, but you can play French horn or tuba. And I was like, I don't play French horn or tuba and don't want to play French horn or tuba. And they said, well, then you don't have a space in this band. Mm. And that was the end of me ever taking any formal music lessons for the remainder of my high school career. Yeah until I end up doing African drumming when I'm in college. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when did the, uh, uh, let's go back a little bit. So who were some of the the earlier rappers? I know I mentioned a couple of names there, but who was really um, catching your ear, you know, as you started becoming more exposed to, you know, hip hop and, and rap? Definitely KRS-One, Chuck D, Rakim, and Will Smith. Mm. Those are the four. And, yeah. you know, people be like, Will Smith, right at the end of that. It's like, hey, Will was the biggest rapper of the late 80s That's right. <laughs> before nope. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And, yeah, you know, it's he might not be it. as lyrically skilled as the other folks that I was being informed by as a kid. But, you know, he was in the picture and somebody that I appreciated. I, like, you know, parents just don't understand. Mm-hmm. Summertime, all that. Like I loved those albums as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the DJ. I'm the rapper. I loved that album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then whenever they started progressing and they did "Boom Shake the Room," I used to love that song when I was oh, a kid. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. and then things, you know, obviously went into the shiny suit era with getting jiggy with it and Miami. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's just things that connect to soundtracks. You know, Men mm-hmm. in Black and wild wild west and all that other stuff so by that time and then by that point will mm-hmm. was not informing my <laughs> lyricism mm-hmm. but as a kid in my earliest memories you know it was definitely krs chuck d rock him and will smith you know, I, guess, it, I would say the fresh prince <laughs> you know what's what's a common denominator it seems of all of those people that you identified is that uh, by and large um there's no, you don't really hear much cursing. Well, I think that's also because of you. <laughs> you weren't letting me listen to everything else that I was also intrigued by. Like it took, you know, when when Outkast came out with Southern Playlistic Cadillac music, I had seen plays ball on Yom TV raps and I'd seen the interview with Fab, you know, pulling up to their house. And, and I'm like, wow, these dudes seem so cool. Like, they're recorded in their house, like in their basement, and they, they're making this music. Like, this is incredible. And the album drops, and you're like, ah, uh, you know. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't one that, you know, ended up in my cassette player. Um, well, you know, when, when uh, Biggie dropped um, Ready to Die, I was nine years old. And mm-hmm. I remember we were at 
the college that y'all taught at, that you and mom are working at University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. And there was a student, um, it was, it was like the, like the black student union cookout or something like that. And mm-hmm. you, me and mom were there and somebody showed up and was all excited. They're like, yo, I got the new Biggie CD. I got the new Biggie CD. And they started playing the Ready to Die album. And I'm sitting there at nine years old with a bunch of 19 and 20-year-old college kids. And we're all, for the first time together, listening to Ready to Die. And I'm like, yo, this is awesome. And by the time even track two comes around, you walk up and we're like, nope. And pick me up. You're like, ready to die, ready to leave. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, come on, like what's going on? So so some of the opportunity to be informed by uh, you know other lyricists beyond just KRS and because even Nas, you know, there was like a little bit of hesitation with let me listen to him. Like you, you, so a lot of those other folks that grew to inform me. Mm. You know, when I, you know, turned 12, 13, 14, I could have been exposed to at nine and 10, mm-hmm. but, you know, that was just delayed a bit due to parental restrictions. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. But, you know, we, I also recognize the fact that, you know, growing up, listening to music, for the most part, you know, I mean, listening to Motown and, you know, all the things that informed me, even James Brown. You know, there w- cursing wasn't necessary to get your point across. You know, cursing wasn't necessary in order to 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 create a certain kind of energy. You know, to you know get people moving and dancing and 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 a certain sense of freedom or release. I'm not saying that 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 it doesn't have its place. I'm just saying that it seemed to demonstrate that it wasn't. Uh, let's put it this way: listening to the sound of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Talk about understand while you dance, right? Mm-hmm. So the words, the lyrics mean something, and 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 some people can be listening to music, and the music, the lyrics can be telling them things that are whether they're misogynistic, whether they're racist, whether they're you know, it could be any number of things that, in general, we might consider to be you know negative or kind of poisonous to consciousness, and so. Um, so I took that that ethos and I felt that it was important that if you're going to listen to something, mm-hmm. you ought to listen to something that 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 doesn't put things in your head while you're shaking your behind and and that goes counter to the values that your mother and I, you know, wanted to instill, you know, in you. But those were important values that I thought it was important that we establish early on. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And I think that's to some extent why, I mean, yeah, I, like I, you know, use authentic language in my uh, music now, whether I'm cursing or not. But, you know, it's definitely at a substantially less of a clip <laughs> mm-hmm. than my speaking voice or the language that I use in regular conversation. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, like even in all of these style free episodes, I don't think I've cursed once. But mm-hmm. turn the mic off and just me in regular conversation, you know, mm-hmm. with anyone and yeah, I'm just going to be me. And mm-hmm. so that intentionality was definitely in play whenever I started writing my own rhymes mm-hmm. where I was actually thinking about, well, 
you know, who do I want listening to my music and what do I want them to get from it? Where it's not like I'm just going to not curse in all of these, but, you know, especially whenever I first started really writing rhymes, it was probably around my junior or senior year of high school Mm. where I really started to put together my, like up until that point, I was just rapping along with every other song and Mm -hmm. looking up the lyrics online and then learning all the lyrics so that every time, you know, a song would come on or I'd be at a party or whatever, like I, I, I would already know all the all the lyrics and everything like that. I'd be like, how did you know that? I was like, well, one, because I also wanted to learn what these rappers were talking about. But most importantly, I wanted to learn how they were rapping mm-hmm. and how they would create cadence out of words on a page. Because, like, you know, I'd look up these lyrics, and if you just look up any song's lyrics without knowing the song, mm-hmm. you can read through it but not have any understanding of what the cadence is and, and how mm-hmm. it flows. And mm-hmm. so I'll be blown away by how these rappers would design and craft their flows. And so that's why I would look up their lyrics so much and then try to learn them as best as I could. Mm-hmm. And so that didn't start getting spit out onto paper with my own thoughts and ideas until I was like 17, 18. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was it about? Let's, let's go through some of those artists that you were listening to and, and perhaps you could talk about the way in which they approach, you know, song structure, lyrics, cadence, and so forth, uh, rhythms that perhaps in some way uh, informs you. I know yeah. you have some some music that's coming up that specifically deals with uh, old school, uh, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about, uh, let's say, let's start with uh, KRS-One, for example. So KRS-One, I would say both KRS-One and Chuck D, whenever I first started listening to them, it was the message that they had in their music. It, was, it wasn't really about how they were rapping and the, and the cadence or the flow or the style in which they were rapping. It was about the lyrics. With Rakim, it was about how he rhymed. And the technicality of these rhyme structures that he was putting together, where I was like, man, like, how many rhymes can, like, how many words that rhyme can you fit into one bar, let alone song? I was like, this is incredible. So I was blown away by his technicality, and Mm -hmm. I was really impressed by KRS-One and Chuck D's message. And the boldness that they spoke about stuff, whether it was like, you must learn or fight the power. And, you know, it, and especially as a kid learning about the civil rights movement and all those major figures like Malcolm Martin and Medgar and all these folks, I wasn't seeing anybody grabbing a mic and doing that except for Jesse Jackson, really, mm. as a little kid. And, the, and so Jesse also had his pros and cons that were being highlighted a lot at the time too. And so it didn't have the same sort of impact, at least to me as a little kid, than I had seen these images of Malcolm and Martin having back in the 60s. And so I definitely appreciated and valued Jesse. And we got to meet Jesse when I was little too. You were little. Uh, he, in fact, he held your hand. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you guys were walking across the quad. Uh, at one of the um, uh, local colleges. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I vaguely remember that. I just remember, like, yeah, like he patted me on the head and was like, "Hold my hand." Where we he was. I think that was at the um, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. 
Yeah. And so, so like that was pretty much the only like major black figure to my consciousness or understanding as a little kid until I was hearing KRS and Chuck D talking about all of this positive and powerful black experience. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so those were, wow, those were the big three. And then I mentioned Will Smith before, just because of the entertainment and the presence that he had and the the fun and the levity that he brought to it all too. And so all of those individuals are definitely, you know, as I sit here now and reflect, they're definitely manifested in my music today. Mm-hmm. For now, sure. You left, you, you left one person out, though, that I remember that you also used to enjoy from California. MC Hammer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was huge. I don't know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that, yeah. And but Hammer that also, was huge. And that's the thing. That also goes to show you, at least for me, mm. what really resonated over time. Like, Mm -hmm. so like the Hammers and the Will Smiths, like as a kid, I loved them because of just that, that, that energy and that positivity. And, and Hammer was also tapping into those who came before him, you know, where you'd see like he brought the, the, uh, that superimposed James Brown into that one video or, and, 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 or in the, um, was it the too legit to quit video where it's like the, where James Brown is in that too. And and then there's somebody who's supposed to be Michael Jackson wearing the glove (laughs) and, you know, and, and so the opportunity that watching MC hammer provided for me was like, yeah, you got to acknowledge and pay respect to those who influenced you and came before you. Yes. And so yes. you mentioned my song Old School. Like that's predominantly the reason why I even made that song was to give very subtle and lyrical acknowledgments to various old school rappers, but also just the old school style of that mm-hmm. uh, and, and the flow I was using or like the the way I made that beat was reflective of an old KMD song. KMD was the group that MF Doom used to be a part of before he mm. changed his name to MF Doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the beat was based off that. You but... know, but, but the thing also is that um, I wanted to also acknowledge the fact that you've also grown up with uh, an understanding and the importance of history, of historical mm-hmm. context. Yeah. And, and how the past does inform the present, you know, just as what we do now will inform you know, the future. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's been very clear from the beginning, that it's looking to the past, it's taking the lessons, the important values of the past, carrying it forward, you know, mm-hmm. into the future. Now, one other person that I want to acknowledge, uh, who I remember was also very important, DMX. Yeah, but that and was I when I became more of a teenager. Yes, and I think, and I think 50 Cent to some extent. Yeah, well, so 50 was goes back to more of, you know, the entertainment aspect of it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, DMX and 50 Cent, I, I became aware of them both when I was around 13, 14. DMX's first two albums dropped when I was 13. And I first heard of 50 Cent, and I was 15, because it was Power of the Dollar, because he mm-hmm. did How to Rob. Mm-hmm. And... I was like, yo, this guy is crazy. Like, he's talking about how, how to rob all of these other rappers and entertainers that 
or like that I know of. And I was like, yo, this is hilarious. Like, this is wild. And so like that boldness and that creativity and that sense of humor mm-hmm. really made 50 Cent stick out to me. And then I, I honestly, then I forgot about him up until mm-hmm. he ends up signing with Dr. Dre and Eminem and get Richard die trying comes out. Wankster comes out. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, it was, it was because of the eight mile soundtrack. That's whenever I was like, Oh, that's right. 50 cent. I forgot about mm-hmm. him, but DMX was way more influential on me as a teenager. What I would probably it say about him. It, well, this, so it was DMX and Jay Z were probably the two biggest influences on me as a rapper as a teenager, and third would probably be Nas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so DMX. I mean, one, he was the first rapper. So like, I, I like I definitely liked the Locks when I was younger, but again, I was like eleven, twelve whenever they were really coming out and I knew that they were from Yonkers, but I hadn't really listened to their music as much as I listened to DMX when he first came out and knowing mom is from Yonkers and hearing this guy from Yonkers talk about these neighborhoods that, you know, (laughs) mom and her brothers and sisters ran through and then grew up in. I was like, wow, like this is, this is wild. Like I know mom has told me some of these stories before, but hearing somebody who was born, you know, 15 years later than her and, and talking about what their experience was in some of these same neighborhoods, I was like, this is, it really stuck out to me. Um, And then learning more about his story of, you know, know, child abuse and and the ways in which he was victimized as a kid through people in his family, as well as the system, um, the judicial system and the, the, uh, penal system. It was just the rawness and the honesty and the desire for forgiveness that he had in his music. I was like, this, this man is rare. Mm-hmm. And then his lyrical ability was awesome. And then the way in which he delivered his rhymes was one of a kind. I mean, nobody was bringing that much gristle into. I mean, you had folks like Sticky Fingers and, and oh all yeah, these folks. Onyx, yeah. yeah, 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 with with these kind of like raspy voices and all that stuff. But when DMX stepped up, that was mm. <laughs> like he, he he took that and, and you know especially then whenever he gets to the, like the dog barks and the growls and all. So yeah. like I mean yeah, DMX was definitely very influential um, because of his storytelling and his honesty and his vulnerability. Mm -hmm. and jay-z it was a few years before i heard of dmx where i first really became aware of jay-z uh it was for the music video for foxy brown's yeah Yeah. because he was the first rapper i saw that was wearing a suit with glasses Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as a kid, I was getting made fun of so much for my glasses and all this other stuff. Where I was like, man, like, you know, this sucks, you know. And then I end up seeing Jay-Z on screen rapping with this smooth, suave flow. And he's got glasses and is wearing a full suit that was, you know, I'm sure it was probably like Armani or something like that. I was like, yeah. I was like, this dude. Who is this? Like, I, I gotta, I gotta figure out who this is because that is awesome. Yeah. And so, I'll be. <laughs> yeah. So that song drops, and then I go back and I, like, I recognize and realize that I was like, oh wait, he's on the Space Jam soundtrack. He, he's the one that did that song. And then I look up, you know, because I'm looking through all of the liner notes and for every album and everything ever, and I realize, oh, he wrote 
the verse for Bugs Bunny because it says S. Carter on. I was like, this is crazy. You know, I'm 11 years old realizing this stuff. And I was like, man, this guy is incredible. Like, I didn't know about the reality of his background or anything like that. I was just going off of what I was seeing. It was like, and just felt so much of an identity and a connection where it was like, you can be in a three-piece suit with glasses and rap this one way, but then at the same time, write cool and funny and humorous lines as Bugs Bunny for Space Jam. I was like, this, it, this, it was so cool to me. Wow. Um, because as a kid, I was also like really interested in acting and animation and voice acting and all this stuff, which I definitely still have an interest in today. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was really, really, really moving for me. And then last- Plus week, you were a big MJ fan too. You yeah. Know, so him in the mix. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know? Michael Jackson was always floating throughout the mix um, up until his passing, really. No, no, no. Oh, um, you're thinking- well, I Michael mean, both Jordan. MJs, both MJs, yeah. Michael Jackson and Michael Jordan, they were both <laughs> major influences for sure throughout that entire time period. I mean, yeah. yeah, when I see the Al B video, Jordan is just coming back for his fourth championship at that point. You know, like all of this can be time stamped with various milestones of MJ of both MJ's careers for sure. And when you saw both MJs in that Michael Jackson video. For Jam in 1991, yeah. yeah. Yep, absolutely. And Heavy D was... Was was uh, rapping in that too, where That's you know right. my favorite part of that song was the breakdown right into Heavy D's rap, and then him doing his thing. So yeah, there, there, damn, so there was just, yeah, it's a lot of <laughs> right. But yeah, so like the the last person though of that era though was Nas. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I was a teenager, I mean, because he had he had done Illmatic back in '94, and back in '94, I was clearly being censored in certain ways. So it wasn't until. I Am and Nostradamus, like both of those albums, where I was able to have a little more autonomy in Mm. the music I was listening to that I could appreciate him more. And so, yeah, moving to Clifton Park, in addition to finally crossing that threshold into being a teenager, Mm. um, also gave me an opportunity to finally have friends who were listening to the same music as me. And they weren't even... You know, some of them were of the same racial background as me, you know, as, um, being black or Latinx. But, you know, it was white kids, Asian kids, Palestinian kids, all listening to the same music that I was into. You know, DMX, Jay-Z, Wu-Tang Clan, Nas, we were all listening to it together. And that's when I was like, yeah, this is the energy and the feeling that I've wanted my entire life. And I was only 13 at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you were also into um, Shaq too, Shaq Diesel. Right? Well, again, that goes back to entertainment. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, it's like you know the the biggest basketball, like like literally, like literally the biggest, you know, seven foot whatever. Besides Michael Jordan, like Shaq had to have been the second most popular basketball player at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever he dropped Shaq Diesel. I was like, yeah, I'm going to listen to this. And then he wasn't, Shaq wasn't rapping bad at all on that album. So, you know, a shout out to him too, because he definitely held it down and held his own where, you know, him, it was him and Foosh Nickens rapping all over that album. Foosh that's right. Yeah. And so that, that, yeah, that helped to inform me as well too. But that, that, but similarly to, you know, Will Smith or MC Hammer, it was more the entertainment value that I Mm -hmm. got from that. If you were to think of the common denominator, you know, among these influences and, you know, of course, we can also talk about, you know, contemporary people, you know, the Kendrick Lamars and J. Coles, 
you know, and, and on and on, you know, is there a common denominator among all of those artists that you've spoken of or any that are contemporary that you could also speak to that you can relate to in, in the sense that you can also connect them with the basic tenets of hip hop culture, you know, to which you ascribe? Yeah, that's a, that's a deep and good question. Um, so, yeah, so for those who don't know, the tenets of hip-hop culture are peace, unity, love, and having fun expressed through emceeing, DJing, breaking, graffiti, and all held together with the knowledge. And so for me, I mean, the through line of KRS-One, Chuck D, Rakim, Jay-Z, Nas, DMX, you know, any of those folks, it's the authenticity that is expressed through the music. Whether or not all the stories are true, it's the authenticity with which they're expressed, I think, is the connecting point. Because each and every one of them, whether it's those folks or like you had mentioned, Kendrick Lamar or J. Cole or anybody like that, mm-hmm. It all boils down to authenticity. And also, I would say how much respect and reverence you have for the craft. Mm -hmm. Because so many people have put out music, but the ones that last and the ones that seem to have the staying power are really the ones that have put in the time and the effort and the quality of buy-in from themselves as well as whatever team or teams that they're working with mm-hmm. that it really gives it a longevity. I mean, the quality of music that Motown was cranking out is eternal. The quality of music that Quincy Jones has produced, whether it's Burt Bacharach to Michael Jackson is mm-hmm. timeless. You know, the quality of music that, you know, folks today like Pharrell and Kanye and you know, all these folks are putting together are timeless. Um, you know, that's a very important point that you just made in terms of use like teamwork. You know, yeah. it's not just one person doing it by themselves. Right. But it's a collective experience where someone might have a seed of an idea or general point of focus, but how you work together can create something that even transcends that individual vision into something much larger. Yeah. 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 Um, So let's talk a little bit about your music. Now you've talked about some of the influences, some of the people that have helped to shape your appreciation for flow and cadence and so forth. Um, What was the first video that you, that you produced that you actually produced? Uh, the first music video I ever made or put together was for a song called Rise That Nine Ether. Um, mm. I made that one in 2009. Mm. And <laughs> it might still be available somewhere on YouTube. But yeah, it's definitely... Um, what What was going on at that time? And what, what, what informed the development of that particular um, music and video? Well... I created the song my senior year of college in 2007 is when I made the beat and I wrote the lyrics between 2007 and 2008. And there was just a lot of soul searching and self-reflection that was going on at that time. I mean, 
in addition to graduating college in the middle of the U.S. financial crisis um, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a career, because the only thing I had really studied consistently throughout college and graduated with the degree through was studying hip hop culture and how it was being used in various cultures around the world and just funneled that through an anthropology degree. So I didn't really know what I was going to be doing for Mm -hmm. a profession at that point. Um, I didn't know what the world had to offer really, um, you know, for me, you know, leaving the doors of F&M and graduating. So there was just a lot of soul searching as far as trying to really get a thorough understanding of who I am and where I come from and the depth to which I can understand the importance and the legacy of us as Black people. And so the title Rise That Nine Ether. I was <laughs> at the time watching a whole lot of Afrocentric videos and reading various authors about, you know, the Pan-African diaspora and then getting into learning about folks like Dr. Malachi York. And I'm not definitely not putting him on a pedestal, um, especially considering everything that he was accused of and found guilty of in his life. But it was through listening to his some of his speeches where he was talking about people of African descent having their hair being of that nine ether, nine being the pinnacle number, and that's why our hair curls in that sort of nine pattern. Mm. Um, you know, it looks like the number nine, and how much of a connection that we have to the grandness of life in the universe. And so that concept really stuck out to me, not the person and what he was doing, but just that concept. Mm -hmm. And that's what I ended up building and creating that song around. I was living in New York at the time and uh, decided to film it in New York and, and try to get as much symbolism of various things that I felt could be relevant Mm -hmm. as possible. Mm So I was Mm -hmm. just trying to, fill the the video with as much symbolism as I could um but yeah it was definitely early and rough (laughs) video in comparison to the like the quality of things that I've been putting out more lately but that also goes to the point that you made earlier about teamwork Mm -hmm. um and and building a team and, and collaborating with other folks I mean so much of my journey musically has been you know, an army of one, especially really being independent. Like I put out my first album, I produced all the music and I wrote all of the lyrics and the only feature was from my friend Dave. And that's right. This was the beginning of just listen entertainment, right? Yeah. That yeah. You, you both started. Yep. Yeah. We, we started it uh, together in 2005 in our dorm room, um, or as actually the suite of his dorm room back at FNM. And then, yeah, by 2008, you know, I had already moved to New York by that point. He was still living in uh, Lancaster before then moving to Alaska temporarily. And so that distance also then necessitated a independence, you know, for mm-hmm. myself where, um, you know, I realized, like, all right, I looks like I'm going to have to do it on my own until I find and build a whole other team. But um, well, well, at some point when you did move to New York, you eventually uh, connected up with a an organization that was uh, created by Russell Simmons. In other words, mm-hmm. you were finding a way to get closer to 
the music business in a in a in a different way. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I started working at R- Global Grind and yeah, I loved that job. I loved my role. I loved the position of the work I was doing. And what were you doing in there again? Well, so I was the uh, content curator, the junior content curator for the website where all of the headlines and various articles and all of it, all of the site was essentially being curated by myself and uh, Larry Blackspot Hester. And wow. What was the value of that experience for you? Looking, looking back. It showed me how fleeting things can be. Mm, what do you mean? Global grind as an institution still exists, but the concept and the heart and the purpose of global grind hasn't existed in over a decade. Mm. So the company was founded you know, within a year of my arrival as uh, one of the first interns. And the purpose was to be the hip hop Huffington Post, where you're getting hip hop perspectives with fresh articles and, and insights into everything that's going on in the world on a daily basis, you know, similar to what the Huffington Post was and is. Mm-hmm. And it soon after became a content aggregator where you're, sourcing your content from other websites and other platforms and having those who are part of the global grind platform upvote whatever they want to see. So the more relevant or more popular things end up making it toward the tops of the pages and the less relevant or less voted things, you know, remain toward the bottom. And then it shifted from that to then focusing for a while, predominantly on a lot of celebrity gossip. And so during that whole time, there was a lot of financial hiccups that happened throughout the organization and caused a lot of folks to be let go. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. that's essentially what happened with that. I'll, you know, ultimately, it still exists and it's still doing their thing, but it's only a shell of the idea that mm-hmm. it was originally conceived from. And that's what I bought into even being mm-hmm. there was that original concept and idea. And yeah, I loved everybody that I worked with. Uh, I loved the the job. And actually, you know, one of my fellow interns, uh, we started there at the same time, but um, you know, he, j- he just recently passed away, Aunt Reynolds. Um, so definitely oh, want to give a shout out to him and condolences mm-hmm. to his family. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, there was a, um, there was, it was a real family environment that we had there for sure. Um, and, and it gave me an opportunity to also connect and, um, you know, build professional and then personal relationships with, you know, several folks on the staff who've now gone on to do incredible, incredible things with their careers. Like Aunt Morgan is currently doing phenomenal things, leading various teams over at Masterclass. And Larry Hester is, in addition to being an awesome dad, continuing to just be black spot and be his awesome self. Kim Osorio is continuing to produce and lead various projects that folks are tapped into and tuned into every day, whether it's on TV or even in her previous work at The Source. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Quelly Wright and, you know, the list goes on Gerard Brewster. The list just keeps going on. Daytuan Thomas, all these folks were there. Navarro Wright, the, the opportunities and the connections. You know, oh, and shout out to <laughs> Blogzilla too, um, where it used to be his nickname at least. <laughs> but yeah, wow. Lamar Valentine. But yeah, so many, so many, so many people were all part of that team. And yeah, you know, things, so, things happen. 
Yeah, no, th- this is this is this is I think important. You know, the lessons that come out of those kind of experiences, and um, I wanted to also ask you about the. Um, let's see, the next video you did. There's a there's one where you have, I think your friend Ashton is in that video, and you're on the subway train, and you've got <laughs> graffiti. Yeah, so a few years later, um, I, I'd, I'd done some videos in between, but. They again. They weren't. They were. They were, You know, it was me doing the best that I could with what I had. Um, and mm-hmm. so the opportunity to really make an actual music video with proper equipment uh, definitely came in 2012. So I was able to do a 12 week workshop and certificate program at New York Film Academy, and mm-hmm. that was funded through my master's program in international peace and conflict resolution at Arcadia University. Mm -hmm. And the 12 weeks that I spent in New York at New York Film Academy gave me the knowledge and the skills to create documentary films and music videos. Mm -hmm. And that was everything that I was intending on being my thesis for my master's program which is why they sent me there. And so I made my first official music video for a song called Follow Me Now. And yes. yeah, some of my friends from FNM are in that video, like Ashton and Paul Fields and Lorenzo Daughtry Chambers. And yeah, it was uh, directed by me, but the uh, videography was done by Fatima Sulkantanova, um, as well as some of my other classmates at New York Film Academy. They were really, really helpful in making that happen. And so mm-hmm. that was my first opportunity to not just shoot a video with proper equipment, but then also learning how to edit it and mm-hmm. pace the shots and add the audio underneath and then do what I needed to do to make sure everything was EQ'd properly. And all of that, um, I learned through that experience. Yeah, that was fantastic. I really liked that video. And, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, and I and you're right. I mean, all of those experiences, film academy, and just your interaction with other people who are creatives and so forth. Again, it goes back to this idea about a, a, a team effort. Mm-hmm. So subsequent to that, um, there were some other developments that took place and films and things that you you worked on. But uh, there's something particularly uh, remarkable about some of the things that have developed now through your work with a filmmaker named Xavier. Yeah, Xavier Luciano. Uh, yes, and uh, the films that you've done from Black Lives Matter, which is really, a, a, it's very poetic. It's a work of art unto itself in terms of the poetry, the use of black and white and so forth. Thanks. Um, you talked before about the pacing and the sequencing and the editing. Let, let me ask you about your process as a creative. Mm-hmm. Um, what comes first? Does, is it the music? Is it the lyrics? And then at a certain point when you decide to make a film about this, how do you go about working with the director or, uh, you know, in terms of uh, sequencing it in a way that either uh, supports the lyrics, counteracts the the lyrics to create some kind of counterpoint, uh, or follows the pacing of the lyrics in a certain way that follows a certain flow? Can you talk a little bit about the first starting out with which comes first? Yeah, so it used to be the lyrics came first and then Mm. the music. But once I started 
creating and producing the music myself instead of just writing rhymes to whatever popular beats were available, then the music informed the lyrics. So now my process is I just make a ton of beats and I'll just make beats and beats and all different ideas. And then the, the strongest ideas get flushed out into having the sequence of a song, whether the hook is going to start first or the verse is going to start at the beginning. And I'll sequence out the strongest ones. And then from there, I just listen to them on repeat and identify what feeling they're making me feel. And then from those feelings, what does that make me think? And then Mm. I start to craft the idea and the concepts of the songs. And I think that that process has been a lot stronger for me as a creative because like, like my lyrics could apply to a lot of beats and a lot of music, but only certain music can enhance lyrics. Mm-hmm. And so making the music first and putting that together as thoroughly as I can before crafting the lyrics. And then I put all the lyrics together and then I go to the studio and work with my engineer, shout out to Phil Pierce. And we were just working in the studio last night too. But we uh, then go into the studio and I'll record my verses over top of the beat and we'll first do like a a full run through and just an unedited take. And then depending upon the quality of that one, we might go through and break it up by verse or even punch it by certain lines, depending upon the complexity of the flow. And then we'll listen back to it and then figure out what may or may not be needed to add or subtracted from the song musically. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's just a whole lot of going back and forth and just making the tweaks and adjustments. And then the song's done. Well, let me ask you generally, what would you say, uh, where do you, where would you say you get a lot of your themes or ideas for what you're going to actually be writing about? It comes from the, the sound of the music because the ideas and the themes switch consistently. Let's so, take a song like, oh, We Outside. Mm-hmm. All right. Could you talk about the process or unpack the way that came about? So shout out to my best friend, again, Ashton Williams. Uh, we were over at his place in Brooklyn and... He was saying, yo, you got to make a song because it's the pandemic and everybody's got to get outside. Uh, You know, it's got to be called We Outside. You got to make a song called We Outside. And that was the original impetus for why I decided to create that song. And then lyrically, the song came about because of how the guitar licks in the song went. Mm. So because the the guitar licks were like... And then the song made me feel like the song feels just musically very well. I was very intentional about it. I tried to balance the the like so the way the song feels in the verse feels compressed and you know there's a heavy bass and mm-hmm. it feels almost like you're kind of inside. And then when the hook shows up, there's a brightness. It's a bit lighter. The eight oh eight switches and shifts mm-hmm. to a different type of drum and bass pattern and there's also an like we added some voices of just people outside in the park you know and 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 
the transitions, I used a rain stick and shifted so that it kind of had this weird little ethereal sounding, you know, cosmic shift from we've been inside for way too long to we outside everywhere we go, <laughs> which is following and mimicking the way the guitar lick goes. Yes. And yeah, so that's yeah. that's how the song and the idea of it really got built was how the music made me feel, which was, you know, outside and 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 then you know, going from this place of compression to expansion and then allowing the melody and the hook to ride along with the with the music itself. You know, it's interesting when when there's a certain part of the song when it's at, you hear this little, you know, doom, doom, yeah. you know, and it, it reminded me of the sound of like, you know, being inside compressed in a submarine. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Underwater, <laughs> you know, like a Nautilus or something. And then suddenly, you know, you surface, you know, uh -huh. and you outside. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and that I, rain stick sound kind of feels like the water coming off of you a bit as you're yeah. catching that breath of fresh air. Yeah. You know, song like Hope, you mm -hmm. know, I got hope, you know, it, it's, it's, and, and the insistence of it, it matches that sense of urgency, which is different than a song like We Outside. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's interesting how you I don't know if you actually think of because we were talking before about being able to tell a story. Storytelling runs through all of this. Yeah. How you paint a picture. Do you see sometimes the image in your mind's eye of what this is going to look like, what the scene is going to look like? Or or does that come about because, you you know, you're talking with some maybe the director or something or, or do you have a, a certain vision? You know, you're talking about the music video. The, the videos, yeah, yeah, based um, on the lyrics. Yeah, so the lyrics definitely inform the video. So, like, you mentioned, like, BLM and the music video for that song. I was listening to the music and was thinking about, like, all right, how can this be expressed visually? And my first thought was of a dancer dancing solo with a spotlight over top of him and he's in black and white, and it's kind of in an industrial space where, you know, every foot movement, you might see some dust kick up or a little bit and like little flecks of it and stuff like that. And then juxtaposing that with myself in a similar, you know, black and white under the spotlight, and I'm rapping to the camera. And that was my original concept for it. And then I hit up Xavier and gave him just the the outline and the concept of the ideas of having a dancer and and the type of shot and everything like that. And we ended up not doing it outside. We shot it at Rec Philly in one of the studio spaces inside of Rec Philly, um, mm. which is just a massive creative hub for, you know, folks in Philadelphia who are just musically or artistically or, you know, any type of creativity. Or if you're inclined, you know, in any creative realm, Rec Philly is an open space for you. And so we filmed it in there because we're able to just, isolate and manipulate the space better for what you end up seeing in the final product. And then through my conversations with Xavier, you know, he was like, well, I have some other dancers, you know, that, that I think could really be, you know, part of this project and, you know, show the diversity of black people and the black experience. And I was like, I love that idea. And so he brought some of his friends through and they were all um, part of the video as well. And then both Xavier and I were, actively filming the BLM protests that were happening in Philly that then started to shift into riots. And so we incorporated a lot of that footage 
into the song and to the video as well because of its relevancy. You know, we're in the midst of all of this social stuff going on in the world. Like, how can we also have some real and authentic footage of the people protesting against police violence and injustice against Black lives within the video? And so, yeah, it, it was it's a, it was a mix of that and just leaning on each other's ideas and ways that we could bring more folks into the fold mm-hmm. that brought it to fruition. Yeah, yeah. You know, the I was wondering if the use of black and white was in some level, you know, metaphor, you know, for this kind of <laughs> white engagement, you know. I, I hadn't thought about that before. I've, you know, it's like this, that video's been out for like a year and I have not thought about that before. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a cool connection. I, the, the, the only reason why, the main reason why I thought of black and white for the video was because of, and, not, and the entire video is not black and white, but the mm-hmm, majority mm-hmm. of it is. Yeah. Um, but was because it was just, it just seemed cool. I, I, I think I was actually inspired by a dance video that Xavier had done several years prior. Mm-hmm. Where and it just happened to be posted on his Instagram, where I think he was dancing solo under a spotlight in, and I don't know if it was black and white or not, but it was definitely cool enough that I was like, yeah, 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 this yeah, is yeah. inspiring. So you know, it's interesting you should mention that because I remember when as you were saying that, I was thinking about that part of the jam video where mm-hmm. Michael is dancing by himself. I think with Michael to a certain extent, but but. By himself, you know, yeah, but, yeah. Both MJs end up out there, yeah, and, a, a uh, silhouette, yeah. right? Yeah. And then I was thinking about the um, Flavinia ear, you know, where he's in the Hall of Science, yeah. you know, and the lights are coming down here, yeah. You know, turn your body into antimatter, you know. Yep. <laughs> yep. And so, like, it's funny you bring all that stuff up too, because I definitely believe that a lot of my visual artistry and my musical artistry has subconscious information from what I absorbed as a kid into it. Mm. So for example, I'm in the process of recording my next song on my next album. It's called Freshest Professor. And Mm. one of the lines I say, I'm rocking from South right up to two fifth, which, you know, I'm rocking from South street right up to 125th street in Harlem. Mm-hmm, um, you know, mm-hmm. acknowledging my girlfriend lives on South Street, so I'm always on South Street. And mm-hmm. then I've got friends and connects all the way up to Harlem and 125th Street because I used to work in Harlem and our main site right. was on 125th Street. That's and right. And so <laughs> I wrote that with that intention, yet I'm driving around in the car Just listening to – well, <laughs> Well, no, I'm, it's funny. I'm actually listening to a Will Smith playlist just because, you know, he smacked Chris Rock. <laughs> and so uh, I'm like, yeah, I haven't listened to Will Smith in a very long time. Let me let me press play on it. And the first song is getting jiggy with it. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, in that song, he says, Rock from South Street to one, two, fifth. I was like, what? <laughs> what? I have not listened to getting jiggy with it in yeah. 20 years plus and yet i have a line that says rocking from south right up to two fifth and he said rock from south street to one two fifth yes 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 you know they say there's nothing new under the sun right 
I mean, so we draw inspiration from a variety of sources and, and we formulate it within our own consciousness, you know, in a way, and then put it out there. You know, it, it says what we needed to say in that moment. I, I think it's real inspiration. That's what mm -hmm. I think it is. And we use bits and pieces in order to make it work to say what we need to say. Yeah. Um, there's so much more to say. I know we're, we're kind of bumping up against the time here. It's all good. But uh, now we, we're looking at the way in which you work together with different artists. It's a collaborative thing. It reminds me a little bit of the jazz experience, you know, with different musicians. You have a basic concept, but everybody brings in their input into mm -hmm. the mix to make it something greater than the individual parts. Yeah. Um, you had an opportunity to work with jazz musicians. Can you talk about that and what it means to you, particularly in light of the fact that, you know, not just who you were rapping about or, or the, what the project was about, but, but also in light of people like Rakim and, and maybe even Tribe Called Quest and others, Guru, mm -hmm. who've been inspired by jazz itself. Can you talk a little bit about where you see jazz and hip hop in relationship to one another? Yeah, I've definitely had the fortunate opportunity to work with the Philadelphia Jazz Project on several collaborations it really gave me an opportunity to work with you know jazz musicians like Pedro Rodriguez and Jupiter Blue and Kevin Obatala you know it's folks who you know are standalone you know high caliber musicians in their own right but you know also have you know, significant you know connections and members of you know the Sun Ra Orchestra mm. and you know other experiences that they've had where I'm just fortunate to be able to connect with them. And I think that the way in which jazz has an opportunity today to continue to intersect with hip hop, I mean, it's, it's tremendous. I think that, yeah, I just think that there's a lot of opportunity. I don't know if it's happening as much as I mean. I would Kendrick like to. has done some some things with yeah, the... Kendrick. Yeah, and it's like everything that Kendrick is doing definitely has a lot of, especially with the Tabimpa Butterfly album. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whenever you're working with Robert Glasper and Kamazi Washington, jazz yeah. is gonna heavily inform the sonic output of of your work. But that's that that's one album in Kendrick's catalog. But yet that album was so quality and so impactful that it feels like it has become an umbrella of Kendrick's catalog when it's really just one facet of it. And so that's what I mean as far as I don't even, I can't, like, I can't say anything right now beyond excitement for an opportunity for it to continue to grow because besides that album from Kendrick, or the work that Bad Bad Not Good has done with, you know, artists like Ghostface Killer, I I'm hard pressed to really see substantial ways that folks are bringing jazz along in the more mainstream sound of hip hop right now. Mm, um, mm. If anything, it shows up in the jazz side more than it does in the hip hop side. Where you have more hip hop artists, the hip hop artists who are inclined to work with jazz artists, it's an incredible amount of people that 
you know, Terrace Martin and Robert Glasper and Kamazi Washington have worked with, whether or not it's just that one project they did with the dinner party or everything that they do independently, you know, from one another. There's been a lot of overlap in those ways. Or even the best example might honestly be live music, Mm. where you have hip-hop artists needing a backing band, and you get folks like Dante Winslow and Adam Blackstone running the band, Mm -hmm. where, you know, they did all the music for the Super Bowl halftime show, just this past Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. They just did the music for the Oscars. Yes, that's right. There is a kind of coming together. Do you think there'll ever come a time where music and Black culture will go beyond certain categories? I guess you could say that about music in general. Yeah, it I'm already just... has. It's well beyond certain categories, for sure. Like, mm-hmm. categories are just really easy markers. Yeah, but do you think that that's a reflection, then, of how the music industry has changed in terms of record companies and so forth, that there's more of an independent entrepreneurial component to getting the music out there that's maybe not as controlled in certain ways? Yeah, I would definitely say so. The The opportunity that artists have had to just put themselves out on their own platforms and have sustainable careers in that has mm-hmm. definitely helped to, however you want to phrase it, whether it's break down or blend genres, Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it's created that opportunity because people are able to be more free in their own creative expression. Then it makes the listener challenge how they've conceptualized mm-hmm. genre and music where you have arguments now about is Doja Cat a rapper? It's like, well, yeah, she raps. So of <laughs> course she's a rapper. Just because she doesn't rap on every song doesn't mean that she's not a rapper. Like mm-hmm. Drake doesn't rap on every song, yet we consider him a rapper. So <laughs> what's going on? So like, there's a million different genres any one artist could be placed in depending upon the song that they put out. But mm-hmm. it'll either be defined by the artist or their label. And mm-hmm. if the artist has more autonomy, then those borders are really meaningless anyway. So what are your thoughts about the categories and things that exist to various extent in Black culture, musically speaking? Let's take in rap. So you have different kinds of rap as they're identified, you know, over mm-hmm. the years. They, yeah. You know, use gangster rap, you mm-hmm. know, pop rap or uh, mumble rap or, yep. you know, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. How much of that is just developed because uh, how the artists self-identify no. what they do, or is that put upon them outside the culture itself? I would say the vast majority of the time it's put upon them by the public, mm. for sure. Whether oh, that okay. public is the industry or the listener or the radio station or whatever the case may be, I would say the majority of the time it's definitely the label is placed by an external source. Oh, okay. So, like, for myself, I just consider myself a hip-hop artist. Like, I rap, I produce, I write, I develop the concepts, I direct and edit these videos. Like, Mm -hmm. there's multifacetedness to myself as an artist, and so I'm not just going to... Like, like people have tried to label me as, oh, you're a, a backpack rapper or a conscious rapper or a positive rapper. But, like, all right, well... 
one, is there a difference in any of those three? And two, could I be all of that? Like, or any, like, it's like, come on, like, what, what, what are we even doing here? Like, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like, saying what type of rapper I am? I'm a rapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you connect with it, you connect with it. If you don't, you don't. But I think that genres also help make it easier for folks to define themselves and for the public to define them as well. Because I could also just as easily say, well, I'm not a trap artist. I'm not a gangster rapper. Like, I'm not a coke rapper like Pusha T. I rap about my thoughts, my experiences, and my perspectives. Mm, mm. That's it. And so however you want to define that is ultimately how you're choosing to define me. Mm -hmm. And me as a person and the experiences that I've had in my life and in my profession are so diverse and so unique that I honestly can't be defined. What Mm -hmm. other rapper do you know had an upbringing where they were raised by two college-educated parents but grew up racially isolated from their peers except for when they were in an institution of worship and then didn't have peers who were connecting with the same artistic output that they had, and then they grow up through this sense of isolation and end up getting a college degree, a master's degree, and is pursuing a doctorate degree, all while being a program director at an international nonprofit organization and teaching courses at a university while also still putting out music and music videos consistently. Like it's enough of a diversity of experiences where it's like, okay, how do you define or Mm. or box that person into one label or category? You can't. Mm -hmm. And so if it's easier for you to say that I'm a conscious rapper or whatever type of rapper you want to label me as fine, whatever works for you, but that is going to have no effect or, impact on my self-perception or the type of artistry that I continue to create. Mm, mm, I feel that. That was beautifully stated. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Well, let me ask you this then, just to to round it out, then looking back, what would you like to say about your career as an artist and looking ahead, 10 years ahead, where would you like to be? It's an interesting question to ask at this point in my life. Because 10 years ago, if you had asked me the same questions, the responses that I had compared to where I am today would be out of alignment emotionally. Where... You know, 10 years ago, I was 27. And at 27, I was actively comparing my age and my recognition to other artists that have inspired me. And all of the artists that have inspired me were very successful as rappers and as musicians by the time they turned age 27. Mm. So at 37 now, I'm being asked this question. And 10 years from now, I'll be 47. 
So my 27-year-old response now would be, you know, at 47, if I still haven't gotten X amount of recognition for my music, then I'm a failure. That's my 27-year-old response mm. If I, when I was asked that question then. You know, if at 37, I don't have this certain level of recognition, man, I mm. failed. Mm. But here at 37, I don't have that level of recognition that I hoped for myself at 27. Mm. But I have the experiences and the adventures and the opportunities that I could have never imagined I would have ever had back when I was 27. Mm. Like, I'm not going to sit here and list all of the incredible things that have happened for me in my life in the last 10 years. One, because my ego just doesn't sit well to do that and mm. like, you know, talk about myself in that way. But two, because it's so extensive and so if I, you know, talked to my 27-year-old self and said, yo, this is where you're sitting at 37, my 27-year-old self might be like, oh, man, why couldn't I do that? Why couldn't I be where you are at 32 rather than 37? It's like, yo, like, would you put it this way? Forget the age. Mm. Would you be happy? Mm. And the answer would be yes. Mm. And so right now at 37 professionally and personally, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life mm. for mm. sure mm. with my family, with my friends, with my relationship, with my career and the various professions I have within my career, whether mm. it's running this nonprofit or teaching or putting together this music, all of it. I'm so happy with, I'm so happy to the point where, I struggle with anything changing mm. right now mm -hmm. because it's going so well, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but change is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that 10 years from now, there'll be 10 years of change between now and when I'm 47, the things that I would want to see for myself mm. is really just to be as happy, if not more happy than I am right now. And however that manifests itself, whether it's one day finally having a song that's on the Billboard Hot 100 mm. or one day, you know, finally having a, a, a placement in a, in a commercial or, you know, because like the, those types of things like that would be awesome. Those are certain things that I have yet to have in my career. Ten years ago, if you had told me that I was going to perform at the Apollo Theater, I would have been like, what? That's incredible. And here I am now, five years removed from performing at the Apollo Theater. Mm. And everything that that has built into, I'm like, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, my name is signed on that wall of legends too. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> like I did that, you know? I, like, And so there, there's just a lot of things that I've done that, if you had told me, even forget 10 years ago, if you had told me as a kid that, one, like, first of all, as a kid, I did envision this. 
I was like, one day I'm going to perform on the Apollo Theater stage. Mm. I didn't know how. I didn't know when. And I didn't know what the context would be. Mm-hmm. But sure enough, mm-hmm. at 32, mm-hmm. I get the opportunity to perform in front of a sold-out audience at the Apollo Theater and get a rousing ovation. Yes. So, yes. Yes. you know, I'm just you know I'm now continuing to build on these experiences. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I hope for at 47 is really just to continue to have an evolved perspective on the incredible things that have happened in my life. So what the, those are those are very powerful um, statements. What would you say to the younger Steve Tyson aspiring? And what would you tell any other aspiring person who wants to, let's say, emulates you or emulates, you know, some of the other uh, folks that you've mentioned, perhaps, and are thinking about going into music, you know, in this way, uh, whether it's rap or hip hop or dancing or what, whatever genre, you know, what, what advice would you give them as they move forward, as they're looking ahead um, to your younger self and then also to others who are younger looking ahead? The advice would be the same for both. And it would be to free yourself from doubt. And I think that the ways in which that's manifested itself for me is because throughout my 20s, I was getting so much feedback negatively about the message and the purpose that I was putting into my music where essentially everybody was just like, don't rap about what you rap about, you know, make, make some throwaway, you know, song that that could just be popular and, you know, just rap about what everybody else is rapping about. Just so you can get your foot in the door and get your foot in the door. And I was so struck by that because I never wanted to, and still don't ever want to, I don't want to ever compromise my integrity for an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, I would step into spaces or not even attempt to step into spaces because I doubted how people would receive me or my music. And I feel like that slowed unintentionally, but the effects are still the same. It ended up slowing my development as an artist where I was more timid. Like even though I'm still going to the New York and Poets Cafe regularly and performing there at their open mics, shout out to Wise Guy and Gaston. I, you know, I was going to various clubs and bars in New York and, and doing these performances and performing in front of, well, New York was definitely a crowd, but in a lot of these other places, I'd be performing for four, five, six, eight people. And they would appreciate my music, but I was like, but only eight people are showing up. Maybe what I'm doing or what I'm saying isn't the right thing. And, you know, I would just doubt myself and then not put myself out there as much as I could have. Mm. Uh, And I think that that had an effect on me. And I also think that it's important for you know, the younger version of me or any artist, you know, who's really trying to get out there to really build a team. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are a lot of 
external forces that allow for a team to exist and thrive together. Like it's not just one person's idea and now everybody's going to come together and it's going to happen. You know, they're like, everybody has something going on in their lives. And so for a lot of these teams or groups or everything, like there's definitely, in my opinion, something divine that kind of keeps them and brings them together. Mm. Um, but for me, it wasn't really until I met Phil, my engineer in 2015, Philip Pierce. Uh, he also goes by the name Six Strings, uh, one of the dopest guitarists, bassists, and all-around engineers and producers you're ever gonna meet. That's for sure. And for the last seven years, like he's been like my right-hand man whenever it comes to all this music. Like that was the first building yes. block of my actual real team mm-hmm. was when I was 32, and <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and then I finally get the first piece of the team. And then my mentee, you know, turned into friend Tyron uh, Hawkins or T Hawkins, as he goes by, um, a.k.a. Ronnie Arenji. He became the next member of the team. You know, he's very active and consistently putting out his music and working and developing himself as an artist consistently. Um, And that work ethic was critical. And I definitely, you know, want to do everything I can to help support him um, and his growth. And then Xavier you know, has become a member of the team as well, you know, with his videography skills and also the ways in which that he's helped bring other people into the fold, bringing other dancers into the music videos or having ideas for different locations or the way shots should be. And then just being an excellent thought partner and a friend too, you know, like it feels like I've, in so many instances of my adult life, I've had to, you know, reset my friend group where... Mm -hmm. You know, now it's like, you know, for for a large portion of my adult life, my closest friends were my friends from college. But whenever it comes to building my team for Just Listen Entertainment, it's going to be none of them. Mm. And that's no shade. It's just the truth. Like, <laughs> like I'm not part of any of their business ventures either because that, that that's not, you know, my skill set. That's not, I'm not an added, uh, added value to that team. And so... The team that I've built and I'm creating now has taken some years to form. And so also then look kind of looking forward again too. my hope at 47 is that the team is even more solidified. You know, mm-hmm. my hope is that it's, you know, Xavier and Phil still <laughs> at that mm-hmm. point in my life, um, you know, wh- regardless of where we're all living and what may or may not come from the potential of various life changes like that. But you know, at the end of the day, it's just my hope that the team can continue to grow. Or if it's not them, that it's other folks that I can continue to have a consistent working relationship with that builds things that come to fruition and then have lasting power, like, you know, staying power. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm certainly convinced, and I might be a little biased, that um, your consciousness is going to continue to rise and expand and it's going to manifest itself in all that you do in a positive way, whether it's music, whether it's in producing, whether it's in directing, whether it's in educational, uh, you know, teaching the youth as you are doing and that has have been doing all of these years. I think that you uh, offer the world a, a very much needed antidote to a lot of the negativity that that is out there and also that it will continue to inspire people to find the best in themselves so that their lights can shine just as yours is shining as we speak. 
Thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. And yeah, and and hopefully I'll have an opportunity to to grow all this, you know, and and you know speak things, you know, into existence. You know, hey, I might be best new artist nominee at the Grammys at forty. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. you know, I, I I'm down yeah. to continue to break misconceptions. You know, age is just a number. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always great being with you, Papo, and I enjoy this conversation very much. Likewise, Dad. Love you. Okay, love you too.